Welcome to everyone. Anyone here for the first time? It's usually not quite as uncomfortable, but for obvious reasons, one reason, uh, the situation that we all are quite familiar with. What I'd like to do this evening is maintain some continuity. There's a series of uh, reflections called Self-Knowing, A Quiet Passion. We've had three or four of those talks already, and I'd like to keep going, but I want to guide it so that it makes direct contact with what's going on right now. So, uh, both in terms of uh, my remarks and also uh, when we have an opportunity to talk things over together. When we left off, well, first of all, I better just very briefly, what I tried to do is maintain some continuity uh, and move this theme ahead at the same time. The term self-knowing, rather than self-knowledge, in a sense, is not that important. In another sense, there is a distinction that I think is worth making. And if you understand the distinction, I don't really care about the words. You can use self-knowledge. Knowing is active. Uh, Self-knowing is something that goes on, or can go on, all the time anywhere. It's not restricted to a cushion or to CIMC. Moreover, it isn't really knowledge in the sense of the accumulation of insights, reflections, information, connections, storing it in memory, drawing upon it when you need it. This is another very useful human function. And finally, uh, it's not even really about self as we think of it, although we have to, of necessity, begin there. Or it's an attempt to look at self. In short, it's not uh, so much, first of all, it's dynamic, it's alive, and it has everything to do with learning. Uh, The learning here is by each one of us, no one can do it for us. The teachings, Uh, are meant to be used to help us do this learning. And the degree to which we take up these teachings, put them into practice, and test them, then you're in the mainstream of the the right attitude for Dharma, at least the Buddha's Dharma. When we left off last time, uh, I briefly uh, mentioned a very, very important teaching of the Buddha Uh, called the Kalama Sutta, uh, which is sometimes translated as the importance of the uh, freedom of inquiry. That is, this is not meant to be another belief. I'm not going to tell you, I've gotten, this week has been quite a busy week. Uh, I've never received so many emails, uh, requests for telephone interviews, uh, letters, and so forth, all about this subject. Um, 
I think it's more a sign of uh, desperation and a, a reaching out for some guidance. But what I don't intend to do is some of the questions that I've received are, what would Buddhists say about what, should, what would a Buddhist, how would a Buddhist behave like? I'm not very comfortable with that. I'm not attempting. I have strong views and opinions, don't get me wrong. Quite strong, well-reasoned out and experienced over a lifetime. I've been involved in war and peace for a long time. I've been in the military. I've used that experience in ways that are uncommon and so forth. But I'm not interested in, unless it becomes necessary for other reasons, I'm not interested in bringing you along and converting you to my enlightened way of looking at the political situation or what next and so forth. What I am interested in doing is to uh, encourage you to at least hint at the resources, I would say immense resources, they're quite simple, but they have as much power as you're willing to give them of Dharma. And that this is a time when we need its help. And so I'm going to twist everything in that direction. Um, it's not so much a matter of beliefs, replacing one set of beliefs for another. And the Kalama Sutta makes that very, very clear. It's to test what the Buddha had to say. And if you don't find that it holds up, if it's not beneficial, if it doesn't help you to live, then drop it and move on. And so that's the challenge I feel that I would like to drop, put out for all of us. Uh, these times and these teachings are meant for each other. Dharma is not uh, restricted to IMS or CIMC or weekend retreats or quietude, in spite of the title of the talk. And it should help us live our life. That's the whole point. The Buddha was concerned about teaching suffering and the end of suffering. What could be more to the point? So, but of course, in order to test these teachings, you have to really test them. You have to do it. And it's not a matter of just hearing it, reflecting on it, and then deciding that it's worthwhile or it's useless. Uh, you can do that, but that's not, what it's, not, that's not what's meant. So. Um, Self-knowing is this sensitivity to your experience from moment to moment with a willingness to learn from that experience. It's ongoing. It goes right up till death, if you will engage with this project. And quiet passion, in one sense, is obvious. Um, to really refine your understanding of yourself and how you live and how you act, not only on the cushion but with others, with nature and so forth, that takes love and a certain passion. It's not as visible as other forms of passion, which are more demonstrative and external. And often some of the most passionate things we're doing are done quietly. It's about a three-month retreat is about to begin again at IMS. It's in order to get through it with some uh, stability and to extract value from spending three months in silence. Uh, it takes energy and a commitment, and it's, it's, it's best done if you really want to do something. You really want to, I would say, move towards sanity. 
uh, and the movement towards sanity, at least in this linkage, self-knowing is very linked to sanity. Self-knowing is very linked to correct action. How could it not be? What the Buddha is saying is that ignorance is the problem. It's not the Taliban, bin Laden. That's an expression of something further down the pike. And of course, it has to be dealt with on its own level. So the great human problem is ignorance. We don't understand ourselves. And as a result, the way we live shows itself to be unsatisfactory. A few, some Buddhist words, I'm not against sharing the Buddhist perspective, not at all, but I just don't want to share it as an ideology for you to subscribe to, but rather for you to want to take and to work with. In the Theravadan teachings, which are uh, quite important to the teachings and the practices of this center, what are known as the kalashas or afflictions of the human mind, greed, hatred, delusion, and their many offspring, is the source of the misery. Let's assume that most everyone, if not everyone, is born with their share of greed, hatred, and delusion. How many people on the planet? How many billion? Does anyone know roughly? 300 billion? What? What? Six. six billion. Multiply six billion. Multiply greed, hatred, and delusion by six billion. Throw us all together, and this is what you get. So it's the human race has hit rock bottom, although I hesitate to say that. Because uh, whatever created this could go beyond it. And, I, and we're, going to, we're going to go into that. The quiet passion has to do with a commitment it's subtle, it's refined, but it's a flame. And it's when practice gets strong and that grows out of doing it, it becomes like a flame. Awareness becomes like a flame and it burns through our trouble. At least that's the metaphor that makes the most sense for me, experientially. Uh, it's also quiet in that the practice takes you to silence, inner silence. Uh, whether you call it emptiness uh, or silence or whatever language you like. When you start to taste this silence, and uh, it's not that it's so far off that no one here has access to it unless you become a monk or a nun or go off to a cave or a monastery, because we, anyone who's done practice for a while, we taste it in bits and pieces, a glimpse here, a glimpse there, 10 seconds five seconds, maybe a minute. But something's happening in that silence. And as more and more you come to recognize it as a normal and extraordinary part of being human, that there's so much more to us than our personality, even if exhaustively studied. And you finally really understand yourself in the sense of your, the story of me and, and my life with all the pictures and memories and conclusions and reactions and transmission from parents and grandparents and all stored up in this film archive, edited constantly. And let's say you do a lot of serious psychotherapeutic work 
And of course, when you watch the mind, you're seeing the same thing. If I put it in terms of a question, is there anything beyond that? And of course, the answer of the Buddha is, is there anything beyond that? That's the least. That's just a small corner of a, of a field that's been cultivated endlessly to the neglect of a vast, infinite field. Silence is a code word for wisdom and compassion, for intelligence that's intrinsic to the human nature. It's not exclusive to the Buddhists or anyone else. It's part of the nature of mind. And so anyone who tastes that silence, uh, it's hard to not develop a passion for it, but it's a quiet passion for the quiet. Because if you got noisy, then the silence is gone and you're back where you were. Now, during these times, when there's tremendous challenge, and I'd like to talk about them that in a, uh, right away, uh, self-knowing, is it's very easy for self-knowing to be uh, pushed to the rear of the, of the car, to be neglected altogether, and for us to get lost in content lost in content in the sense of uh, drowning in it or uh, d repressing it, escaping from it, denying it, analyzing it, explaining it, crying about it, reading about it, talking about it. And it's very easy to forget about ourselves even though that's what's going on. Of course it's affecting me. And that's I think why we're here tonight, at least I hope so. Um, I'm so in the moment that I have no, whatever was four seconds ago is ancient history. Can anyone help me out? <laughs> it's just the early stages of senility, sorry. What? something a bit maybe after that. Well, you said you wanted to talk right away about what's going on. I do. <laughs> but, uh, but there was something before that. What? Even before that. All right, it'll come back. Give me a moment. Can you do that? Good. So one casually, if you're on the path of self-knowing, which is what I would say Vipassana is, is that you get lost in stuff and you don't do it. Probably you all know what I'm talking about. And you also know what I'm going to do tonight, which is tell you to do it. Uh, but also what is, and related to this of course, is the tremendous challenge of how can you come to inner silence when there's so much outer turmoil, when there's so much uh, anguish, when there's so much pain. Not only that, it sounds very much like to go towards silence is to neglect the world that we live in, to turn our back on, on what's happening and to escape into some silence. 
what I hope I can at least hint at tonight is that in order to really be clear out there, it's helpful to be able to go in here. Now, it can, that can be used to escape from what's going on. Those of you who have been yogis for a while know that when you get concentrated, you leave the whole world behind. And if you go off to certain retreats, you even have a stage set, which uh, helps you do that for extended periods of time. But that's not designed to be a way of life, at least for most of us. Because certain of the things that can be accomplished in silence, in meditation, enable us to then enter into action in ways that are useful, that are beneficial. And we hinted at that last time in the Buddha's discussion with his son, Rahula, where he gave Rahula some hints about action. Before you act, during your action, and even after you act, by means of reflection. Is what you're doing, thinking, saying, is it beneficial for you and for others? If it is, full speed ahead. If it isn't, don't do it. If, you've, if you're doing it and you find in the middle of it that you were wrong, stop and apologize or just stop. And if after it's over, you thought it was the right thing to do, in retrospect, you see that you were really off, then learn from it and let it go and move on. So uh, the silence is uh, very practical. It's at least survival. And here by survival, I don't mean of the physical body. I mean of a certain dignity and integrity for all of us in the face of tremendous uh, challenges. Let's just look at some of them. They're verbal right now, but they're more than verbal. But uh, just listening to the news a half an hour or so before coming over here, I, here are some of the things that I got from it. Maybe it was 45 minutes. One, grieve. It's important for us to grieve. Who doesn't know that? We're, we're all grieving. I mean, I think so. If you're not, it's okay, but most of us probably are grieving. Okay. So that encouragement is good encouragement. But then it also tells us, get back into action. Fly buy things. In other words, be, be normal. Be normal. So grieve and be normal. But not only grieve and be normal, but get ready for a war that's going to last, that's going to last possibly for years. So grieve, be normal, uh, muster up the strength and resolve to face rather difficult conditions that might be uh, extended for years. And it goes on, be calm, but then there's a sh there was footage on uh, what a person who gets smallpox looks like. How are you going to be calm? Well, you can, but you're looking at the face of someone with smallpox, or what anthrax does. More and more, of course, it's become clear that the, um, that the mind that can, that can produce the actions we just, we know of, uh, if it can do that, there's nothing that it, it won't do. Buddhism, the teachings of the Buddha, if it's anything, it's a religion of the mind. The heart of the Buddha's teaching has everything to do with the mind. So the terrorist, the, the, the bombings, what we call terrorism, that all came from human minds. 
and also the attempts to eradicate it, the attempts to live in a very, very different way, what we're uh, attempting to do here, that also comes from the mind. The secret of both misery and happiness is in each one of our minds. It's not nowhere else. And if you're a Dharma practitioner, of course you've heard that message again and again. But during times like this, it's very easy for us to be pushed off course and to forget what we know and to, and to not do it very much. Or to think we're doing it, but not really doing it. Um, trying to remember over the week uh, different questions that came up on the phone or overhearing things in cafes. And I go, still go to cafes. I'm not fully enlightened. <laughs> because I think some of it might be representative of our minds. And of course, I'll be drawing upon a little bit of my own experience. Someone asked me, you've been meditating a long time. Did you cry? Uh, I was taken aback. Of course I've cried. Uh, I'm not the Buddha out on the grounds there in the back, which is stone. Uh, well, I thought if you meditate, you would be have equanimity and blah, blah. Um, it's a funny thing with practice. And of course, this question comes up after a while when people say, you know, I feel I'm suffering more. I'm more sensitive now that I've been doing this meditation. Absolutely. No question about it. If you're really doing this, you become more sensitive. That's what being awake is. Sensitive in the sense of discerning. You really begin to notice things, even if it's just a tree you're looking at, or an animal, or anything. The sounds of a bird chirping are much more vivid. You know, those who've been practicing know what I'm talking about. So meditation makes you dramatically more sensitive in the sense of discerning or knowing that kind of refinement. But it also makes you more vulnerable. You see pain. That same discernment sees pain more readily in others. You're, if you're really practicing the path of self-knowing, self-knowing is not kind of, sort of self-knowing. It means unconditional commitment to learn how to receive fully your experience as it appears, without preference. That means facing all those critters that are living inside of us, some of which are there, but we don't want to know about them. And there's disappointment. Some of our cherished self-images crash to the ground. If you're willing to take a look, we're not living the way we uh, forged an image of ourselves. It seems to be some kind of contradiction. So uh, the pain in another, the pain in yourself, is more sensitive. But, well, then why do you people meditate? It sounds like uh, self-defeating. Because you also become stronger. This is not so easy. I'm speaking from my own experience. There's a subtle kind of strength that balances all this out. And it comes from, I think, at least this is the best I can do in terms of words, refinement, uh, rather sensitivity in terms of seeing clearly. And when you're hurting, that same awareness is uh, directed to the hurting. 
course. That's all. I'm not saying anything special. That's the practice. And out of that comes less of a resistance or fear to be in pain, less fear of fear, etc., less fear of loneliness, and more of an ability to uh, open our heart so that there's room for everything that's in us. And that's, of course, liberation. That's, that's going in the direction of liberation. And there's a strength that comes from that. It also can't be done with a certain amount of strength, without a certain amount of strength. So to be a yogi takes courage. It's not just in, out, in, out, mm, nice feeling, uh, 20 minutes is up, let's, uh, let's go jogging. By all means, in, out, in, out, in, out. But there's more to, the, to wisdom than just calming down, as vital as that is. So yogis do cry, even experienced ones. For me, the, the firemen did it. Uh, the first newscast was um, everyone's running out and they're running in. Let's see, other things. Um, humiliation. This has been a humiliation to the United States, but it's more than the United States. Uh, as the days unfold, we see it's an assault on so many, on a way of life. It's an assault, even the symbolism of the world trade. I, can, I have to bring some interpretation in. Uh, the global economy is not impressive to some people, nor is modernity or living a secular life or many of the freedoms that we seem to cherish. It isn't shared by everyone. Um, and what's happened is, what didn't happen during World War II, we were at war with two major industrial powers, Japan and Germany. And we weren't bombed or assaulted. The homeland remained free. Amazing. Same in Korea, Vietnam, the Cold War. And here are some people with uh, little knives or something, little, little little shaving kit uh, could do uh, damage that is inconceivable. Every, it gets worse and worse every day in human terms. And being able to accomplish an extraordinary destabilization of a modern, powerful, industrial country. I would say there's humiliation there. It's being covered over with flags and pride and all kinds of other things. But, uh, and fear that goes along with that. Now, humiliation is a very, very important human experience. Speaking from, I'm going back and forth between a culture and us as individuals. I don't know if you've ever felt humiliated. I have. And it's very important as to what you do with humiliation. What you can do is strike out at that which is, you have identified as humiliating you exclusively. It's a bad world with bad people and it becomes a kind of cowboy morality with good guys and bad guys shooting them up. And of course, you're the good guy. Or you turn it on yourself. And you just uh, put yourself out of commission psychologically because of what you've interpreted as being humiliation. Of course, there's another road 
no surprise, and that's the road that each humiliation uh, has an immense amount to teach. If you're willing to throw the word away, it's a powerful blow at our sense of self, safety, ego, whatever. Uh, it unearths tremendous energy. It unearths truths that perhaps have not been looked at, that have been latent and dormant. And right now, I think it's pretty much almost an animal. The reaction is, if you attack me, I have to attack you. Uh, so this is not a time that much is being said about, you know, this humiliation, this uh, everything that's happened. It's not only the only, of course, it's, I'm not going to debate pacifism versus war or Gandhi. There is no Gandhi on the scene. I don't know what Gandhi would do. Who would he pr protest against? Who would he fast against? Where are they? It's different. Okay. Um, so right now, I, I think it's inevitable, I don't see how any way around it, there's going to be some physical striking out. There's got to be a, a military response for all kinds of reasons. Okay. My hope is, this is again, this is personal. I can't keep everything out. Maybe it's all just one big fat opinion. <laughs> you know, just with a light coat of Dharma over it. <laughs> Is there something for us to learn? After the shock uh, hit me, and uh, I was, it was perfect. I was doing yoga, finished my yoga session, had a nice little smile on my face, body felt limber, breath flowing freely, lots of energy. Then I did my sitting, my Vipassana practice, sitting there doing what we all do here. And the phone rang, and a friend called me up. This was relatively late, like 1, 12.31. Uh, do you know what's happened? Do you know the news? And I said, I thought it was some good news. You know, X got married, or Y had a child, or I don't know what. Um, no, I don't. He said, well, and I was told, and I put it on. And I put it on as the plane was flying into the building. And it looked like a Steven Spielberg special effects or scientific, a science fiction. I've expected Godzilla to come out right in back of it, or King Kong, you know, with a little lady in his hand, and it'd just be a Hollywood production. But it wasn't. This is actually going on. This is, it's what is. This is what happened. So after the shock of that, and emotions that I don't have to spell out. You all have had your own version of it. Uh, I was left with a question. I don't know if we can call it a koan to make it sound a little more Buddhist. The question was, what are the conditions that are necessary to produce such hatred? What is going on here? What, the, what conditions have to emerge and exist to turn the human mind in this direction to such an extreme. Uh, and I've been living with that, and I, I, I have some 
I do follow what's going on in the world, and it points to something that uh, the modern world has to learn. America, it's not just America, but right now we can limit it to that. We're Americans, we're here, and it's happened to us. There's something to be learned from all this. I'm not going to tell you the direction I have gone with it, but it certainly includes uh, a fresh look at foreign policy, uh, the way we view the people of the Middle East, and so forth. And I'm Jewish. I have an emotional bias towards Israel that I can't help. But a uh, certain fresh look is needed to examine the entire canvas. Uh, that takes a big mind to be able to do that. I'm not sure our government has people who can do it. This is not a put-down. I don't mean any government. I don't see any, any Gandhis or anyone like that. I have more faith in the people, in the American people. So I think we have to support Bush. Here comes my... It's necessary. But we also have to watch him. And we have to watch what's going on. Uh, he has the hardest job in the world right now, I would say. Uh, I don't think he counted on this. He's much more of a domestic president. Uh, so that's that. But now let's play it, move it to us as individuals. What did it bring up in you? I spoke to a friend of mine, Tani Sarobiku, who comes here once a year, a monk, a Western monk in California. And we compared notes. And I said, what is it bringing up in California? He said, the fear and anger, mainly. I see a lot of that, too. More fear, it seems, than anger. The anger uh, is there, but fear is, and it seems to get stronger. As, and, of course, sorrow. Other things I've seen, and I'm interested in what, what your experience has been, when something like this happens, and this is where self-knowing uh, is crucial, and I'm going to do my best to link being actively engaged in the world that we live in whether we like it or not, and contemplative work. They're not irreconcilable. It's not necessarily a head-on collision. In fact, those two words can fall away because it's one whole human being attempting to live with some sanity. I've seen, uh, of course, fear. I've gotten phone calls from people who have lost people due to, due to suicide. And there's been, in one case, uh, someone called up and was talking around the bush, about the bush. Not a close friend, but someone, I, a friend of a friend. And I, didn't, I was waiting for the headline to come. And I could feel tremendous anxiety and anguish. And I said, you know, what's going on? And this person said, well, uh, this event has re-stimulated uh, the same kind of the memory of when my daughter took her life. And more and more I'm hearing this pushing into whatever fears you may have had, uh, being projected onto a future uh, that uh, is frightening, where we start to imagine we're going to be doing this for years, and there are these phantoms. Uh, then I heard an Israeli psychologist reassuring us, saying, telling, telling us that you get used to it. It's okay. <laughs> uh, well, I don't want to get used to it. 
And I don't know if most Israelis are so happy being used to it. I don't think they are. Um, so that's that person. Uh, I've seen uh, it's produced something. I spoke to um, the son of a very, very close friend of mine is 25, 26. And uh, he and his age, some of his friends, and what many of them are going through is it has, it's been a head-on assault on their priorities. And they've had to take a fresh look as to how am I living? What is it that I thought was so important? It doesn't seem that important. Uh, a lawyer who lives upstairs where I live said, I went to court today, but I just went through the motions. It just all seemed trivial. I couldn't do it, but I did it. Um, it is the, the, the people who are in the 26, 27-year-old range, they sounded like they stepped out, out of a Buddhist textbook from 2,500 years ago. Because uh, some of you know, I, we have a practice group here on aging, sickness, and death. And the Buddha left many reflections to help arouse that sense that we don't have forever. Reflections on the fact that we, uh, we all must age. Illness visits probably everyone or most of us, and inevitably all of us die. And there are meditations, uh, quite a few within all the Buddhist traditions, which help you arouse those feelings of an obvious fact. It's true. It's not a Buddhist theory. The purpose being not to throw us into deeper depression, but to awaken us to the preciousness of our life, and particularly if you're on a Dharma path, to arouse light a fire under your rear end uh, that you don't have forever. We don't have forever, and what you know? Oh, I I really like to sit, but I have a headache today from this news. Tomorrow I'll start. Okay, then you're cultivating those qualities for another day more calaces, water them, give them some nice plant food, and let them grow nice and healthy. I'll do it the next day. I'm a little tired today. So what the Buddha is trying to say, get your priorities in order. If you're on a spiritual path, please understand what that means. So it's to... Uh, Samvega is the Pali word, which... Uh, Roughly, it, it has to do with seeing the precious, the uh, fragile quality of life uh, and helping us turn towards um, something that isn't so transient. We put so much faith in what uh, cannot provide ultimate fulfillment. And I don't want to create a a dualism that now we have to just reject life and shave our head and go off somewhere. It's not that. It has to do with an underlying commitment uh, to liberation, which happens wherever you are, can happen. The practice is meant to be a way of living. It's not limited to the cushion at all. So uh, uh, next week we start aging, sickness, and death, learning how to live, learning how to die. That's a I don't think I'm going to bother with all those reflections. I mean, anyone who's alive 
we're already <clears throat> where I can't even get people by the fifth week. We're way beyond that. So let's just start right, you know, let's get at it. I don't know, each one of us is different. It has aroused different things in us. There's the sameness as well. But let me make a very important link. I think it is if you're a person of practice. Some of you are new. To help me, how many people are really new to this meditation practice? Really new. See, I hope this isn't sound like it's abstract and not practical. Yeah, but I, I can't help it. Um, If this brings up powerful emotions in us, really strong ones, and I'm pretty sure that probably most of us, if not everyone here, knows what I'm talking about firsthand. Um, and if the impulse to practice, to be mindful of what we're experiencing, uh, tends to be uh, put off to the side because the power of the, of the conditions and uh, the emotions and all the other people that we, we meet are going through the same thing. It's an unusual event. It's, in a sense, a planetary crisis. It's not just American. Uh, the human race is facing something here as a race. Um, why would someone encourage you to sit, at least spend some of your time sitting. Although it's not just sitting, it's bringing mindfulness into your life as best you can. Perhaps using the breath when you feel you're really getting lost. Just turn to a few in and out breaths. You don't have to even formally uh, assume a sitting posture or anything of that sort. Just to, uh, in a sense, short circuit uh, these uh, proliferations of imaginings that take us to uh, inconceivable hells that await us, which are coming from our mind. They're not necessarily what's going to happen. Or some metta, or 10 minutes of a yoga posture, or some deep breathing. Something to kind of get some solid ground. Simple practices. Very simple. You all, probably most of you know them, and it's just a matter of remembering and then coming back. Okay, but I'm talking about beyond that. I'm talking about looking at fear. I'm talking about looking at uh, whatever it is that you may be facing. And they're not uh, to be trifled with, because what's being released are very powerful human emotions in many, many people. And some people, uh, particularly uh, friends in New York, but it's not limited to New York, uh, post-traumatic, what is it called? Stress. Stress and other things, especially those people who are in, have lost people or who are actually in the building. Uh, personally, I've had experience with survivors of the Holocaust, the Jewish Holocaust. There seem to be more than one now. 
Uh, I've had experience with people, uh, Russian people from the gulags, who are meditating, trying to use Vipassana practice to help them with nightmares and inability to sleep and, and memories that don't go away and, and so forth. And with Vietnam vets, it's, it's very difficult to work with people who've been through such uh, trauma. The, uh, there's this uh, tenacious uh, holding on to the suffering, uh, somehow to look at what's happening is seen as uh, almost sacrilegious or vulgar or you're turning your back on people who died uh, that, or that you're cheapening the experience. Somehow you have to, there are a few, only a few that I know that I've worked with. One I know took five years of very hard work. I mean interviews and whew. So I don't underestimate what faces us at all. And each of you has the resources that you have. If you're just beginning, you have that quality of mindfulness available, but use it. I would say, in a sense, more important than how long your bun has been on the cushion is understanding and motivation. If you understand that this is uh, the best thing you can do for yourself. And let me make that a little bit more concrete. It's not to get away from, although temporarily it may be. For example, anyone who teaches these things, we're in the hot seat right now. Uh, I have four requests for interviews from magazines, Buddhist and New Age magazines, all who think that I have the answer as to how to behave to something like this. And I'm sure they've sent it to Joseph and every, you know, well, okay. And just make sure I don't forget to say this. Michael, Ryan, myself, uh, everything is beginning again. Practice groups, Wednesday night talks, interviews, retreats. Uh, the center is here for you. We're all here. We're going to do our best to, for ourselves and for you to draw upon a resource that has helped human beings through these difficult times for centuries, thousands of years. And personally, I know it works. But of course, I'm in the business, so what would I say? <laughs> Dentists tell you to floss. <laughs> now it's more electric toothbrush. If I told you it doesn't work, I'd have to get an honest job, for one thing. So I'm not to be trusted, is what I'm saying. <laughs> It's to take the teachings and find out for yourself if this is a bunch of baloney, malarkey, or if it's something that, if you use it, uh, awareness is your best friend right now. Awareness and the willingness to learn. Now, let me spell that out. We're assaulted. We feel deep pain. We feel deep apprehension about the future. If you have children, it could be worse. I'm not denying any of this. Can you bring a quality of non-judgmental attention? It's not detachment. Now, maybe to begin with, you have to pull back or you can't do it at all. Okay. But that's not really pure practice. Pure practice is quite different. It's intimate. It's opening up to. It's fully receiving your experience. It's being where there's no separation. You're intimate with your experience. 
If there's sorrow, let there be sorrow. But stay awake in the midst of the sorrow. Let that energy arise, let it run its natural course, and sometimes it will teach you, not necessarily in words. Now, if you can even do a little of that, the mind gets quieter. If you're an experienced meditator, you can tap silence, even now. And then, from that clearer mind, what in Zen they call no mind, whatever language you like, clear mind's as good as any, as clear as, you, as you're able to help the mind be right now, then you can return and face the challenges that face you. Each one of us face, has different challenges. Challenges with our families, challenges at work, challenges, of course, starting with ourselves. And that's why I'm saying, start with yourself, always. I hope America can do some of that, to look to itself, to understand how we got ourselves into this. Now, not five years later, as we did in Vietnam. Political, sorry. Um, so that it's, it's practical. It's not a matter of c the contemplative life versus, oh no, those people are, they're activists, they're in the engaged Buddhism. They do things like that. They organize rallies, and I'm not telling you to organize a rally. I don't know what you should do. I don't want to tell you what to do. I would like you to be better equipped to face your life as it is so that you will know what to do. Now, Sangha is a word we often hear. We take refuge, those who've been around for a while, in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. You know, get so can get quite mechanical. We chant it and so forth. This is Sangha tonight. Uh, who doesn't know what I'm talking about? You may not agree with my angle at which I'm coming at. I don't care about that. But we're all here, and I think it's good that we have each other, even if it's just for a few hours, that we know that there are people who are hurting the way we are. But you have that all over, but also people who are trying to remain balanced, clear, sane in the midst of it. We're not any different than anyone else who's suffering, except in one sense. Let's go back to where we started. We're being asked to be peaceful, not peaceful, uh, to grieve, and at the same time, get down, get back to work and fly and do all those normal things. And at the same time, get ready for war, and at the same time, be calm, and at the same time, we may be facing anthrax poisoning. And I'm adding another one, and at the same time, practice. What is this guy crazy? I, I can't do even any one of those things. But you see, it's all the same thing. And it's not a trick. Awareness is with you, at least potentially, all the time. No matter what it is you're doing, you, the possibility of mustering up that quality of sensitivity, it's our birthright. Human beings are born with awareness. We all have it what is called the, the original nature, Buddha mind, the unconditioned, that's not, uh, everyone, no one got gypped. We're all born with that. It's part of our equipment. So whatever else you do, by all means, if you have to grieve, then know it. If things turn out to be uh, 
that there is an, an extended war and we have to face conditions that we, you're not used to. I have some sense of war. I was in the army of occupation after World War II. I saw what was left of Germany. I know what war does, at least that kind of war. Okay. Then awareness can help you with that. It can help you agree any of these, anything we hear. You're always better off if your mind can be clear. You're always worse off if your mind is confused, if you're caught up in, for example, take fear itself, which I, I, get, I have a hunch is the main one we have to deal with, all of us. Get to know how your mind can generate fear, how it can fabricate it. There is something to be afraid of. I'm not saying it's a hallucination or that we're uh, deluded, but the mind has a way of adding to what could, is factual it has carte blanche, poetic license. It can make it into whatever it wants to. And you can create a nightmarish world that isn't here and may never come. You can create terror that's worse than anything that you'll have to face. Practice can help short circuit that. So be honest. If it's grieving, then be honest with the feelings. If it's fear, then feel that. If it's worrying about your children, feel that, but also allow your intelligence or your wisdom uh, to stay with you as your best friend, your discernment, to begin to see uh, at a certain point, does it really help to imagine a world of what's happening? Some of it may be necessary to uh, e stimulate a certain kind of intelligence to help us act sensibly and intelligently as citizens of this world and of this country. And finally, and I'd like to hear, I'm not sure it's finally, but maybe it is. Um, it must be hard to be Muslim right now. Uh, we have uh, corresponded with the Islamic Center over on Prospect Street. I've called up and we're doing our best. It's not much, but but let's put that in the context of, what we, of the challenge we face. And we know that it affects people who look as if they might be Muslim. Poor Sikh was gunned down. You all know this. Okay. Look to your own mind. I walk past a gas station, and I know the gas, the gas station attendants, not personally, but I, and I know one is from the Middle East. And I haven't thought of him. He's not important in my life. You know, I just walked past there on the way to Bread and Circus. And uh, yesterday I walked past, and I, I realized, I put a double take. I looked, and I looked a little bit longer, and he saw. Uh, what we have to be careful about is something that is, if you're a Vipassana practitioner, the mind um, creates images, projections, Images of yourself. I am an XYZ, the story of me and my life starring me. Produced by me, directed by me, etc. <laughs> and it also produces images of others. Oh yeah, that person, they're a XYZ, of course. And we don't, we, our relationships are not fresh. We're not fresh with ourselves. We actually take for granted these stories about ourselves and unexamined pictures of who it is we're, we're talking to. 
They call it stereotyping. It's as good a word as any. This is a time to be very careful about that, particularly with people who maybe need a little bit of support. But again, it's tricky. You hear on the news, be careful. After all, any person who is Islamic may be a terrorist. They may have harbored someone who's a terrorist or be harboring them right now. The, uh, on the one hand, uh, Bush and any sensible person is saying, please don't get sucked into that, that all, is, uh, all Muslims are terrorists. And then again, there's an alarm out with the FBI doing an unprecedented search that uh, the people who did this passed as just good folks. You know, just the guy next door, sweetheart, going to the gym now. So the challenges are great. And I think, uh, I hope the practice can uh, help you meet them. Uh, draw upon the center, draw upon your own inner strength. One feeling that I have, I've had for years now, I hope it comes through in my teaching, I see most people as much stronger than they think they are. I really do. By strong, I don't mean this. I mean inner. That's where it counts. So use the practice. If there's fear, if there's anguish, if there's hatred, uh, this is a time to practice with it. In a way, what it does, what it accomplishes, is it helps liberate you a little bit more as a person. And that is just what the Dharma is about. It's about liberation. And at the same time, that very same act, which you might call contemplative, meditative, dharmic, Buddhist, because inescapably linked to that is a clearer mind. You have a, a mind that is more able to deal with, admittedly, a very, very difficult situation right now. So practice is not something rarefied. It, it says... It's very, very practical. I hope you can come to see it that way. And, uh, and thanks for your attention. Um, short break. Uh, some of you need to leave. Uh, whoever wants to remain, uh, we can stay for a while. Usually we announce, well, we'll stay for s such and such amount of time so that people can estimate it so you don't have to feel you're rude by getting up in the middle and walking out. But I think tonight we'll just drop that. Uh, if you can only stay for 15 minutes, stay for 15 minutes. Leave when you have to. And I will stick around for a while. Okay. Um, those who have to leave, it's not a big break. I want to continue. So those of you who need to leave, please do it now. And everyone else, What's in your mind? Please share it as openly and, and as honestly as you can. I don't have answers. I just have been practicing for a while. Those who are leaving, step it out, please. <laughs> All right, get the heck out of here.
Why don't we start? What's, please, and really speak up. Let's move very, very slowly. Self-doubt. Tell me what you mean. Um, the patriotism makes me feel very uncomfortable. Ah, good one. Can we stay with that for a while? Don't forget your second one. I knew I forgot something, uh, which is on a lot of people's minds. The flag. Okay. Uh, I learned a lot about the American flag. I actually have a flag hanging out of my apartment. I'm shocked at myself. Uh, I brought up the possibility of, of a flag at CIMC. They nearly lynched me. Okay, it's not that people don't care, but here's what I learned from it. I'm listening to everyone's projections. It's just a piece of cloth, you know. For me, the reason I'm doing it, uh, it just exploded. Uh, you know, I. I been in the so-called anti-war movement. I, I was in the military refusing to bear arms for two years. I was in the medics. And stuff. It's, not a, it's not an act of bigotry or aggression or America first. It's, a, it's grieving. That's all it is for a little while. Uh, it's uh, showing a feeling of being together with other people who are also grieving. That's all it is. Now, people were incredible. Uh, one person said, well, if, you're, if it's Dharma, then you can't wave. You know, it's, that's saying America, America, America. That's not Dharma. I don't agree with that. I think that's attachment to emptiness. I'm going to get technical Buddhist Heart Sutra, chapter and verse. Uh, it's, the issue is not whether you wave a flag or not, or even whether you love your country or not. It's whether there's such a level of attachment, identification, that you set it up as a kind of fortress over and above other things, so that other countries are seen as, who cares? It's me. That's where the, the, and everyone's doing that. We're doing it to each other as individual egos and as nations. There's, in itself, there's nothing wrong with loving your country. I love America, I can tell you that openly. I come from an immigrant background that escaped from Russia. I have a lot to be grateful for. I'm not shy about it. Uh, but the other point is well taken. That is, okay, now there are people who say, I'm a citizen of the world. That sounds superior to me with my little flag and loving it. But I would say not necessarily, because sometimes, because some of them are my friends, uh, they set that up over and above all of us little beings, you know, who uh, love their country and maybe uh, other kinds of provincial little uh, love Cambridge or, you know, sort of. Uh, so it's caught in the same trap as people who are, I can't be a Buddhist because that's a, a little enclosure and it's identification and blah, blah, blah. But then you create, create a person who's non-aligned with anything. That's another group, you know, <laughs> you know that, that's set up against all those ignorant people if they'd only see through the fact that they're the ones who are causing this suffering. For the most part, they're right. Identification, it's madness now with every little, there are countries that I never heard of. They're now, their history I have to know about. Uh, 
Uzbekistan's history and how noble and, you know, I'd never heard of the country until a few years ago. Sorry, I mean, I thought I was reasonably well educated. And every one of them, it's all, we're all versus each other. And, you know, so that's just like any other uh, craving, attachment. That's just straight for noble truth. Of course it's going to bring suffering, and it is. An attachment to views and opinions. The terrorists have a strong view and opinion that they're going to heaven and they're going to get all these virgins, you know, like, and their families will be well taken care of. Good luck. I haven't heard any uh, mullahs or Islamic scholars, except a few on the internet quietly, to, to just step out publicly and discredit that and say that's not in the Quran. In the Quran, what's emphasized is you don't kill civilians even during war. Okay, so, there's, so there, it's subtle, but I know what the flag means to me, and I felt a little self-conscious today. You know, like what? When Michael and Orion come back, they're going to see it. I wonder what they're <laughs> <laughs> But I have a four-letter word for them. I'm flying my flag. It's grieving. I love this country. Uh, I also feel very close to Israel, and I also care about the Palestinians. I'm quite aware of the suffering they're undergoing, and I'm quite aware of the limitations of Israel. So that's not the point. So is that something like what you were questioning, getting at? Uh, no, I think I'll Oh. <laughs> well, I told you it's all about me tonight. <laughs> it's all about me disguised as a big Buddhist teacher. Okay, go ahead. Let's try. I apologize. Yes, but that is good. That was, that's an extension of this. What does it mean to be a good American? What does it mean to be a good Jew in, in Israel? I would say to try to understand the suffering of the Palestinians, to understand that there's been greed in Israel, that on the one hand there's been an offering. We want peace desperately. On the other hand, the settlements keep going on, even with all right till recently. Uh, you can't have, do it that way. Okay, so I'm doing it for the benefit, I think, for the benefit of our country. I'm not America last. I love this country, and I don't think just uh, flexing muscles and, you know, and, uh, will you really feel safe if the, if the guard is, is uh, activated and we have 40,000, 8 million more soldiers? And There's no shield for, for this. Something else much deeper has to be understood and worked with. And to some degree it is, slowly. So... I don't see any necessary conflict as a, as a good American. Let's say you have a child and you see a child is doing something destructive and stupid. Would you say that you're a good parent? That's wonderful, Johnny or J Janie. Uh, as a good parent, you have to intervene and say, what are you doing? You're going to wind up in the penitentiary. Do you see what I'm getting at? Good. What's the second one? Well, we got there just a long way. What? I forgot. Okay. Please. Forgive me if this is a basic question. Oh, there's no such thing. Um, I have a three-year-old son who is yeah. processing this all in his unconscious, and every now and then he'll say, Mommy, like today in the park, there was an accident and people got killed. Uh, what happened to them? And I said, they died. And being a Catholic, I said, you know, they went to heaven. Um, what, what would you say to a child? 
Yeah. Um, I have to, first of all, disqualify myself. I don't have children. Uh, I, I know, I mean, I, I was a child. Uh, I still am, probably. <laughs> um, you know, but I have, I've watched and I'm human. Uh, it seems to me it would depend on the child, how uh, strong or fragile the child is, the, the total uh, domestic situation of the child. Uh, that doesn't sound so terrible. Do you believe it that the child will go? You know, uh, the the ideology of going to heaven and all what you just said is that true to, for you? I, I I believe that there is something after this. Oh sure. You know, and more and more with this teaching, I feel like we who are separate and different systems, and somehow we come together. It seems like some of the stuff which is basic to any good parent, the child needs to feel loved and safe. Okay, that, but then that becomes a head-on collision with, truth, with the truth. And so you don't want to totally, but it's three, three years old. Yeah, he keeps going back to death and wanting to know. And um, I, 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 I have a difficult time talking about God and heaven because I'm, I'm more and more in, interested in the Dharma, but I don't know how to... Uh, talk about what happens afterwards to the child. But why did you bring that up? Did the child ask about afterwards, or is that something you introduced? Gosh, that's a... Hmm. Um, I, I suppose... I would say closer to this fact, simple. You asked where did they go? They died. Where did they go? What happened? Did the child ask that? Okay. If they didn't, why open that up? Uh, in other words, I would... I've already opened it up. Well, now it's... Yeah. yeah. That may be more for you. Uh, again, what I do know, this I do know a little bit more about, uh, you know more than I do about what to do with your, with your son. But uh, the degree to which... Much more. But the degree to which you're in touch with what this is bringing up in you will enable you to draw upon your own wisdom, your own obvious love, uh, and to do what's best. It's, not, it's obvious in a, uh, uh, it's not going to be perfect. I can just, I'm just now thinking of something. When I grew up, I was sheltered from, I loved my grandmother, and she died, and I wasn't allowed to go. I wasn't three. I was older than that, but not a huge, not that many years older. And uh, the Jewish way was, uh, you stay home, the adults go first of all to the hospital, I wanted to be with her, uh, and then I wasn't even allowed to go to the funeral. And I've regretted that. Okay, but, but in Buddhism, what did they say? It, you know, there's reincarnation? No, it's not really reincarnation, it's rebirth. It's a little different. Okay, but is this for your edification? See, it doesn't sound like the child, what, the child at three years old, <clears throat> Why make it introduce a level of complexity? Uh, I think it's more immediate. The child. Uh, can, let's back up. Let's not move away from this just yet, because uh, it's a. On the TV. Yeah. Yes. 
okay, see, you gave a lot more than the child asked for. That's too late. You're the, the you know, it's open, uh, the, the box. But uh, it is necessary, to, I, I would think. But I, I really know the limitations of what I'm saying. Uh, I would say very close to home. But, you know, if we take the Buddha's life, that might be of some help. Uh, he was given a bunch of baloney, right? That's, uh, it's, uh, the, uh, he was uh, protected from aging, sickness, and death. You know the story of the Buddha. And he woke, part of awakening was to realize uh, this is natural and part of life. So I'm all for children uh, being uh, gracefully introduced to one meaning of Dharma is natural law. To me, that's quite beautiful. It's just the way things are. Uh, there is also Buddhist teachings about rebirth, but I don't think that's too relevant. There's a distinction between rebirth and reincarnation. In a nutshell, reincarnation implies a fixed entity that uh, drops one body and then inhabits the next one and the next one perfecting themselves. In the Buddhist way of thinking, rebirth, there isn't a fixed entity to begin with. The self, we're just a process. And so th this will, I think, convey it faster than my words. Uh, if you have a candle that's burning, and then you have another candle that isn't lit, and you take the lit one and you light the, w the one that isn't lit, is that new flame the same or different than the old one? It's not exactly the same, but it's also not different. So in other words, but this is true even while you're alive. In other words, there isn't, and it's one of the meanings, a very important notion Ooh, I left something important out. Okay, thank you. Uh, I'll get to it. Um, of, uh, uh, have you heard the teaching of, sham, of, an, uh, of anatta, anatta? Emptiness? Okay. The risk. It, I, have to, uh, I do have to take it for all of us adults. What, it, the, what the Buddha is saying, and, and in some sense, emptiness is the crown jewel of the Buddha's teaching. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a difficult one. Okay. Uh, let's go to the World Trade Center. The amount of solidity that building had, now we're hearing what went into building it, and you know, it's like monumental. Okay. It's quite an accomplishment. Okay. Where is it now? Okay, now... Uh, what, look, Dharma is revealing itself. This natural law is revealing itself in the most peaceful of times. Like impermanence is always true. It is never a second when it's not true, and it's everywhere. As the Buddha said, it will be like salt, is wherever you dip into the ocean. So change, constant change, that's the natural law. But when this happened, we got a post-PhD teaching on the fact that life is impermanent, Things change, and they change in an uncertain and unpredictable way. If you didn't get that, go back to and do your homework. It's powerful. Okay? So now, was the World Trade Center hallucination? No. It was a beautiful, depending on your view, uh, <laughs> creation uh, that it existed, but it was empty of inherent existence meaning it didn't have the solidity that we impute to it. You see, but nothing does. This used to be my apartment 
honestly, this, this meditation hall. I lived here for 15 years. Okay? Kitchen, living room, TV set, meditation, little meditation yoga room. Okay? Uh, I was kicked out, fortunately, and I lived down the street because uh, we had to make a larger meditation hall. And towards the end of the process, I walked in and my apartment was gone. And I couldn't find anything that was familiar. Even the windows, nothing. Okay, it's empty, but it doesn't mean that those 15 years where it, was, it gave me uh, protection, a place to uh, heal, all kinds of things. It was wonderful. It was a home. Okay, I'm grateful. It, it was real during the time that I lived there, but it didn't have an, an inherent existence that existed from its own side. It, was, it, it came together because of causes and conditions. Before it was that, this was originally a birthing place for the first, first and only birthing place in Cambridge. Women gave birth, and this, a doctor and his wife lived here. Then a doctor and his wife died. He married his nurse. You know, uh, <laughs> okay. Then it became a rooming house. When we got it, we got it for not too much money because it was a dilapidated, bankrupt, failed, terrible building. Okay, so. It's all called 331 Broadway. Where's the real 331 Broadway? Right now, it's CIMC, Cambridge, and we have all the state, you know, Buddha's walking, Buddha's sitting, you know, you know sort of like, uh, and, you know, we're building, in a sense, it's, a, it's theater. Uh, but it, it's theater to help us create some calm, some peace, some incentive to look at ourselves, uh, to be more loving, and so forth. Uh, but, so the teachings are saying, okay, you can ha accept that. I know you were nodding with World Trade Center, and you, had, you understood my apartment. Okay, how about you? You're empty too. What we think of as being me. This is solid, and out of and this me, out of the me, thoughts are issued. But this is, you know, it's, it's, from the Buddhist point of view, the me is put together by thinking. Word, you see what I And, okay. You got it. So the rebirth is that process. That's not too comforting to people. <laughs> we want to know that we're going to exist. Why is everyone so interested in rebirth? They, because they're afraid to die. But the Buddha's teaching is saying that's not really what's important. It's to come to that which is timeless. In the Christian religion, would be to come to God. In other religions, would be called something else. The, the self in Hinduism, perhaps, with a big S and so forth. Um, so it's trying to, see, it's not that, that this world doesn't exist, that my apartment didn't exist, but it always existed in that uh, tentative way. And why does the Buddha teach that again and again? Uh, to help us let go, uh, to enjoy what's there while it's there, including people we love. But to, but to not get deluded into thinking that this is here forever. You see? Good. Yeah. Oh, wait. I, oh, I just wanted to, because this was just final. For all of us, uh, it was a, quite a lesson in Dharma. Many things were taught. Uh, the emptiness of the World Trade Center, etc. Uh, you can't miss it when an event like this happens. So uh, learn from it. Learn from it. Uh, that's Dharma <coughs> practice, too. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I found it, I was upset that 
I've sort of come to the intellectual and maybe spiritual limits of pacifism. I, I spent a lot of time thinking about the death penalty for professional reasons and doing a lot of other things that may, kind of entrenched it. And suddenly I found something happened that I, I couldn't, at least intellectually, limit. I couldn't say this is someone who still should not be killed. You mean there was someone you felt should be killed? I, inside, I absolutely did. I couldn't, when I was in discussion, find a way to, to sort of bring myself back from that. I couldn't figure out. I reached the end of, of uh, for my purposes, anyway, pacifism and violence. Okay, now, you have a choice there. One is to change. You're not a pacifist anymore. People change all the time. Okay? Uh, another is... That's the test of your pacifism. You're being challenged. Are you really a pacifist? Here's someone who's a dirty, rotten... I asked one of my first Buddhist teacher was a Korean Zen master, a wonderful, extraordinary, wonderful human being. And I said, uh, if you were up close to Adolf Hitler at the beginnings of war, and you had a chance knowing what, where this was all going, and you had a chance to assassinate him, would you do it? And he's a, he is, and he paused and paused. He took it seriously, to his credit, I think. And then he said, in his broken English, maybe sometimes kill is okay. He said, but I would be prepared to pay for it with karma. He said, I, 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 would, I wouldn't get off. Just, you know, so uh, if you want to call it the Buddhist way, Buddhism may be, I'm not sure of it, it seems maybe the most pacific of all the world religions. The emphasis on nonviolence is quite strong. Let's just say it's a very pacific religion. I don't want to compare it with anything else. And that doesn't mean you can't come to the center anymore. Because from my point of view, what's important is for you to work out your own life and your own destiny and to come to terms with this. But maybe it's a struggle. Maybe you'll come back to realizing you want to stay with that, no matter who the other, that person is. And that you were just, you were pushed to the wall and you fell down according to your deepest principles. Or maybe you'll revise it and say, look, I was a pacifist, but uh, I'm not anymore. And, and then get comfortable about that. Because you know, because it's true. Yeah, please. I was talking to a friend a few days ago and, uh, on the phone and I said, that I felt the need for more peace more than ever. And I said, I, I, and I said to her, and I said, I never considered myself a pacifist, <coughs> but that's where I am now, and I, I don't know why, and that's just where I am. And um, so what I wanted to share... Okay, I just, I, I like to move slowly. Yeah. Remember, that's still a label. Yeah. And I don't know what it means, and maybe you're in the process of discovering what it means. Um, Great, you're a pacifist. Okay, here's where self-knowing comes in. Self-knowing comes in. What does that do for you? What did it do for you to, to uh, find out you had urges inside yourself that you didn't know were there? Kill the son of a... You know. um, why? You know, in other words, everything that we do is pointing back to that which issues the attitude, the action, so do you see what I'm getting at? So it's a piece of self-knowing uh, so no matter what it is, it can be invaluable in that it can help you be free and then either be a pacifist or not. 
Keep going. But you know, not only that, when the World Trade Center came down, the birds are still chirping. The sky is still blue. Um, but there's something, a point, I keep seeing some things that I should have said, but I didn't. I hope that gatherings like this, in other words, the power of the Sangha is helpful for us, all of us. We all need each other in, in this way. And then we all go our separate ways to our whatever your life is, whatever my life is. You're all teachers now, whether you know it or not. Um, the degree to which you can bring this practice into your own life and bring a little bit more stability and sanity into your own existence, see if you can help those in your family, at work, who are not meditators, who don't have resources, but just not by preaching to them or telling them to come to 331 Broadway, but by demonstrating it, by being a little bit more grounded. Do you see what, I, what I'm... Yeah, uh, for example, the woman who's had, was re-stimulated, re-stimulated the feeling of the suicide of her daughter that I mentioned earlier. After talking, look, you can be very helpful to people right now. You know what it is to have uh, the law of impermanence and uncertainty. It's not only that things are changing, they're changing in uncertain ways. You know what that is big time already. You can help others with this because you, you have, you've been with it for five years now. She, did, she didn't see herself as having anything valuable to help others with. She saw herself as now a double casualty. So what I'm saying is if you, if you have a practice, she did have a practice. If you have a practice, for, use it. I want to get to this because you're all, to me, skirting around something that I just can't leave this building unless I uh, make sure we all walk out uh, and I make sure that I emphasize this. With If I have to hit the bell, I will. I've spoken to some people. I've meet, met someone in Bread and Circus today, blah, 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 blah. And, and, oh, Larry, what do you, you know, I'm not uh, King Solomon or you know, I'm just another person like yourself who's going through the same things. So I said, look, I can tell you one thing. Practice. This person has been practicing for 10 years. I said, oh, yes, yes, no, no, I have been. Of course I've been doing that. I mean, I never forget. I, always, you know. and I said, well, then why are you just... Uh, and we started to talk, and I came back to, through the back door, then through the side door. We said, oh, no, no, of course. <laughs> um, 
what does it mean to look at fear? And it's not just, oh, fear, and then it's uh, to experience the energy of fear as it circulates through the body, as you feel powerful sensations, as the mind uh, keeps producing thoughts that are uh, unempowering, no, that's destructive, that are uh, telling you uh, they're all disastrous. Uh, You stay with it. You knocked on your rear end, you come back. And you work with the energy of fear as best you can. Sometimes going back to the breath or metta to regain some, some composure. Uh, but really, sincerely bringing the practice of mindfulness to what is happening in a sustained way. One of the most important things that Vipassana is about is learning how, in general, not about this event, learning how to receive our own experience, expanding our capacity to do that. We humans don't have a large capacity to receive our own experience. We have strong likes and dislikes. Freud, you know, knew the unconscious is rich. We don't want to know this. We don't want to know that. Oh, yeah, this is all right. Okay, uh, if you practice more and more, what you're doing is you're uh, finally making friends with yourself, which is all those different forces that, so to speak, live inside of you. And so this is, as I say, a post-PhD course. It's just like uh, bringing up whatever it brings up. Be willing to, to face it, to learn from it. And real practice is not just catching a glimpse or making a mental note. You know, fear, fear, and then moving on. That's not even what that method is designed to do. Uh, that the mental note is designed to help you stay in a non-judgmental way with what it is you're experiencing. So, is that what you're doing? Are you really practicing? Yes. I have to say that in response, I came here thinking you would calm me. I've made you more anxious. I just want to name that it's okay. I mean, What's okay? Oh, if, is there fear? Uh, no, I, I do. It's rhetorical, but I need to. Then, then yes. Yeah, I'm not a priest. No, but I don't, I don't know what Joseph did. I don't. Yes, there are many things that can be useful, but what I'm trying to emphasize is. Uh, bring the practice. This is, if ever there's a time to draw upon whatever level of skill you have, it's now. And if fear is with you, yes. Now, I'm not saying rub your head in it. Uh, Sometimes take a walk in the woods, notice that the birds are still chirping. Uh, Sometimes do some loving-kindness meditation, uh, take a warm bath. Uh, It's not to crush all joy and to be obsessed with fear, but if it's there, obviously, what it means to practice is to meet it in a friendly, affectionate way, by the way. We're not at war with fear, our own fear. How to meet it in a soft way. You know, there's a, a very old image that can be kind of useful, I hope for you right now. How do you, what, what's the attitude that you would observe fear with? And this may sound pretty far-fetched. So it's like a grandma or a grandpa watching children at play. You know, the little 
like, uh, it's not the event. No one's trying to water down the event or, or sugarcoat it. It's that this is all coming out of you. It's, it's the mindfulness is you, the breathing is you, the feeling is you, the body is you. Uh, it's sort of you being affectionate with you rather than fear is this energy that's invaded from uh, alien sources. From, do you see what I'm getting at? It's, uh, it's your fear. And so soften. But to soften in this way, that's what I meant by sensitivity, vulnerability. But it takes great strength. But I don't know of anything better to do than this. If you can't do this or don't want to do this, there are many, many people who don't. Most human beings don't. But you happen to walk into the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. You know, we could uh, pray and chant, and that's all useful too. But to me, that doesn't go deep enough. That's a bias. Obviously, it's self-serving. Self, uh, because this is what I do. Yeah, please. I forgive you. I think so. But um, today I watched on television two women who live right next door to two of the pilots who crashed the plane. And they live right next door. That's what I'm saying. And, and like, what do you do? Do you, um, and it's so, I mean, do you just trust all people? There's no way for them to have known they treat them as anybody else. You have to do the best you can. Look, there's, because certain white people put hoods over their heads and lynch black people, does that mean that no white, you, every time you see any white, how could, you can't live that way. So, so do you suspect everyone? Do you trust everyone? Or someone well, but you see, what an event like this produces is there is more, it's asking you to be more vigilant. Uh, are a certain kind of people... Apparently not. Okay, so, but what you can do is stay awake. Every, look, you can't help but be awake to this now. Uh, and use your practice so that you don't inordinately suffer and also make some innocent people suffer. You can be awake without having to be so anxious all the time. So what does it mean to be awake? Pay attention. If you see anything suspicious, what more can you do? Look, the atmosphere has been polluted now. If you, if you want the external world to provide you with a peaceful canvas, can't do that. So the only hope you have is inner work. Now, it's not saying become a dum-dum, but it is saying most Muslims are not terrorists. Both facts are true. Some are. What? Okay, I don't want to get into the history of sociology. Well, this is about you. It's not about uh, cultural. This is not uh, talking heads on CNN. It's about you. No good. You want to, what? Then that's what you have to practice with. Whatever you tell me, I'm going to throw the ball back to you. You're uncomfortable about it? Then that's what you become aware of. Okay, refine that process so that there is some careful looking without the tension that goes along with it. That's something that practice helps you with.
your own tent, things come up. You can learn how to be equanimous as you observe things in yourself which are rather unpleasant. You can learn how to do that. Please. Well, it's good to be over this side of the room. <laughs> yeah. They have this um, fear that people who wear glasses only see forward, so I'm really glad we talked. Good. Um, there's there's something that I talked about at a, at a with a group of people, and I realized that it had a tremendous charge when I spoke about it. Um, during the Vietnam War, when I was 16, uh, and it has to do with backing America and you know being a citizen and loyalty. So um, you know the it was 1970, and the the first big marches were happen, happening on Washington. Friends of mine were getting tear gassed, and I had some some guys come up to me and said. You think we should bring our boys home, do you? And I wasn't going to, I knew what I felt and thought, but I also knew it was a trap because they wanted somebody to pound on, which they did. And, but it didn't just like happen. I then became their, their target. Mm -hmm. So there were like these stealth attacks. They wouldn't, it wasn't enough to like, you know, confront me around a bunch of people. Um, so at the same time, I was trying to write a paper, a history paper, on why, what, look into the question whether or not it was okay to, to, to bomb Hiroshima and Nagasaki, just having grown up with those images and the incredible uh, devastation, um, whether or not it was necessary, and and believing in my heart that it really wasn't okay to waste that many people for mm -hmm. political ends. Um, and then at the same time being confronted uh, again and again with guys, they threatened to kill me. I mean, things just escalated. Because I kept getting away. So they had to, I don't know. So basically oh, I Could I you bring it up to, to today yeah. to what's going on right now? There, there's See, all this is in your computer and memory. Right, and part of what's being reawakened is that they weren't actually, there was this kind of flag-waving sentiment that was covering up a will to do violence. Yes. And I became their target. Yes. And I'm really, um, part of the grief is about what happened, and and there, I've just been having this really sickening feeling about where things could go in this country. True. And and that's kind of like hard to hold. I want to be like, you know, proud to live in a country that, that enables us to practice the faith of our choice without fear of persecution. But I'm well, what? Where is your? Where is your? Who's persecuting well, every you? Time, every time who's persecuting you now? Maybe it's the ghost of, of yes. flag waving. Right? Yeah. I don't know. Okay, but that's what I'm suggesting is that... But it's a real uh, gut level, you know, it wasn't a head thing. It wasn't a philosophical thing. These guys... But it's all, yes, but, but right now it's memory. Yeah. It's over. 
uh, and it's influencing how you experience the present. That's true of all of us, everyone in this room, whether this happened or not. The, we don't see the present, we see it through yesterday's eyes. Part of what the job of Dharma practice or Vipassana meditation is to undercut that and to see with freshness. And the only way that I know that you can get to that is to see all the things you're telling me about. So your practice is, is to see, but to see them for what they are. These are memories that are coloring your present. Yeah. You don't, you're not too sold on it. No, no, it's really true. But it's, I'm not saying it's, it's easy. It really caught me by surprise. Oh, yes. I didn't expect, you know, it was just, this is only the second time I told this story in eons. And it's like, I, I tell the story and I hear this huge charge and it's almost like the screen goes blank and once in a while I make eye contact with you when I'm back in the present. Okay, so that's what you have to... So that's what you have to, have to yeah. practice with. Let me put this on a, a bigger Dharma canvas, if you don't mind me. When you go deeper in meditation, when anyone does, you leave behind being an American. There's no American in the, in the silent mind. An American does not get enlightened. That would be idiotic. Uh, n- nor does uh, a Pakistani, nor does a man or a woman, nor does an old person, a young person, uh, whatever you want. That's, this is a place that is, uh, OK, I think you understand what I'm saying. Now, it's a subtle point of, of the teaching. There's something called attachment to emptiness, or in Zen they call it the stink of emptiness, which is that you get uh, so pure, you know, that is, I'm beyond being this, that, and the other. And essentially you've created a very subtle dualism where there's you that's awakened and beyond all patriotism, chauvinism. After all, once there wasn't in America, it's a convention, it was created, and it'll fall apart someday. Planet Earth won't last forever either. It's just the law of impermanence. Okay, so all of that happens. And uh, because you've attached to being beyond all that, uh, then you've set up another opposition with those people who love their country and put out a flag for whatever reason and so forth. Um, Attachment to emptiness, or let's say the the medicine for that, is to understand this comes from the Heart Sutra. I hope some of you, all of you, read it someday. Form is emptiness, emptiness is form. That is, you can't separate these two. So that what makes it sane would be you can come back to being an American who's liberated. Of course, it'll never be the same because uh, you have a different relationship to being an American, being a this, an X, a Y, a Z. There's no question about that. It's in its place. It's not the deepest thing about a human being. None none of these countries are, nor ethnic groups, nor races. Look, I come from a very Jewish background, 14 generations of rabbis. Is that enough? Okay. That's not the deepest thing about me. It really isn't. And I know it. And that, but that is an effect, an influence in my consciousness that I'm not at war with it, it's there. There's some good things in it. There's some things that I have to watch out because they uh, poison my mind in certain ways that I don't want, and so forth. Okay, so now we have a fresh new situation. Um, What does it mean, I told you how I wave my flag, but look, most people in Cambridge are with you. 
they're you know, ready to lynch me. Look, people in this center, they nearly fainted when I said, you know, Larry, you, you uh, I mean, I refused to bear arms for two years. I went through hell to get that status in the military. I was in the infantry for two years, so I didn't have to be, but I served. Okay, and, and I was in the anti-war movement, and everything you're talking about, I know it well from the inside, and I'm waving a flag. I'm not waving a flag. I just, for me, it's, it's just like the flag at half mass. It's just grieving. Uh, I know that America, I, also, let me, let me sketch this out. It's a very big thing we're dealing with, all of us. I've experienced sorrow, haven't you? Of course we have. But I've seen different kinds of sorrow in myself. Let me give you just two. One was Sunday, I was taking a walk in the park in uh, Boston Commons. And I had heard before that in the Sunday morning news and all about this is we're talking about years and we, you know blah you know this is a, a war, and I saw you know two guys with purple hair and earrings through every orifice that they had, and I looked at them and I got very very sad because what I saw was if this is a war that goes for years they're going to be drafted, bye bye purple hair. Bye-bye. And I also know just the thought of having to go through 16 weeks of basic training again, which I, you know, I don't know what that, I just felt, and two years of being, even if you believe and you love your country, not, you're not cut out, you don't want to be a soldier, but you have to be. It was exhausting, and I felt a certain sorrow for the, the generation of young men, and some women too, who are going to have to go over and serve and be part of a military and go through what I know they have to go through. I did not love two years that I put in. I did it. Okay. I also have felt sorrow, not unrelated to this, that is not particularly American. It had to do with the collective, timeless sorrow of, uh, the, of we human beings. That is, uh, the level of ignorance it's a human problem, the whole planet. Is this where we've arrived at with our extraordinary computers and getting to the moon? And of course, then you get to what some people would think of as utopian. Uh, some kind of inner transformation is what has been neglected. We know a tremendous about, amount about stuff which finally isn't all that important. We know very little about what is most precious. We don't know how to live together. We don't know how to live together because we can't live with ourselves. We're in conflict. How can we expect our leaders not to be in conflict? So whew, that's a big one. Uh, conferences, they may help. I'm all for it. I'm for the United Na Nations, peace summits, meetings, and all that. But unless, some, unless the human race decides to allocate its energies in a somewhat different way, so that what, uh, through the school system, re, re, radically changing education, so that what is held to be important is wisdom, compassion, self-knowledge, not special just for people who become monks and nuns who have sallow complexion. It's, for, it's, it's just a general cultural value. And it's, why? Because we can't survive otherwise. We have to learn how to live with each other. And then there are some religious texts that imply, hey, that's hopeless. This is the curriculum on planet Earth. There are going to be all these ignorant people, and there are going to be a few who see it and don't want to be, and they get liberated. And then there's the rebirth process, you know, karma. And, the, and so it goes on. You, the curriculum's not going to change. 
because that comes from someplace much deeper than your nice educational program to radically uh, re-educate the human race. Uh, Keep it simple, stick to the present moment. That's the best thing I know for, for these times. Don't get too far ahead of yourself. Pay attention. Uh, that's really the, the essence of good practice. Keep it simple and stick to the present moment. It's very hard to do. We spend a huge amount of time in the future and in the past. And then as tourists, we drop into the present moment from time to time. You know, we visit it. Maybe when you come to this building. <laughs> What the practice is about is more and more living in the present moment and visiting the future and the past when it makes sense to do so. But I have a lot of what you're talking about too, but you've got to see through it so you can behave now in a way that's real. That's just my own feeling. Last question, I think, or please. Yes. I'm not sure that's true, but maybe. Let's say it is. Yes. I think it's absolutely true. I think it's a wake-up call on many levels, many, many levels, including spiritual. But, you know, one last thing. Are there any people here? I don't feel I did to you with your son. Is there anyone, you know, are any people here who are parents or who are people who work with children a lot who would have something to say that's a little bit more intelligent than what I have to say, that's more helpful? Anyone? What do you, what do you tell a three-year-old? Please. Of course, that's not what the uh, terrorists are being told. They're having a ball up there. Um, one last one if there's something burning. Yes. I think even though you're not here, 
Oh, that's obvious. That that's yeah. There was something called Jataka tales. These are tales of the Buddha in previous lives, and they're often tailored for anything that is relevant from what you know of them. I don't know of anything. He's, he's almost four years old. He keeps going back to death. He keeps asking about death. I don't think it's, I mean, I don't think, maybe I introduced it initially, just the accident thing, but he keeps going back to it. You know, there are stories in the Buddhist tradition of young children uh, who are five, six, who at the funeral of a parent, and as like Dogen, a very great Japanese Zen master, as the incense stick at the funeral and everyone was sobbing, uh, obviously it seemed that there was more realistic treatment of the subject. I'm all for sensibly staying as close to the truth. And I, I was told that when I asked, well, where do babies come from? You eat a lot of kasha. That, that's a, a grain. You know, uh, you know, just, okay. So, uh, and then, okay, but at any rate, this, this was in a, in a, a dharmic culture, which maybe America's on the way to coming. Maybe that's part of what you're, more and more, this is getting stronger. Spirituality, let's call it. I'm, okay. Uh, in that culture, the, Dogen, as a very young child, uh, became really concerned about the nature of human life and what happens to it at death, because he lost a parent. And it, it wasn't that it was just morbid, it became the energy that fueled a lifelong self-inquiry that resulted in enlightenment. So I think it can be dealt with in a true and honest way, skillfully, depending on the child, the situation, the timing, and most of all you, I think. Please. See, we have some experts here. What? Good. One last one about anything, please. Um, you you said you called the Islamic yes uh, the mosque, and I'm curious about what they said they needed. Uh, they're overwhelmed with support. Uh, they really are. This they, they had a march to Boston, and there were just a tremendous number of people joined them. They have a blood drive. Uh, they're, they've printed something in the newspaper. They sent out circulars to everyone, I, you know, uh, uh, put it in the mailbox, explaining who they were, that they're not terrorists. It was intelligent, beautifully worded. Uh, you could feel the worry there. But I've seen, some, here are small signs. I buy the New York Times almost every morning at this store 24, and there's, and there's a young woman who's behind the counter, and she has... I don't know the name, kerchief and a long, okay. Two days ago I came in, no kerchief, blue jeans, you know, and I realized, you know, safety. Parents are saying, you know, 
Yeah. So, uh, look, we, we want to avoid what happened with the Japanese, but there's going to be no way to totally avoid some mistreatment of people this way. There, there are too many people who are ignorant. There are too many people who are uh, desperate, who are grieving themselves and don't know how to handle it. Um, what we can do is minimize it in our own, each one of us in our world. There are small things you can do. I got into a cab uh, last week, and it was clear that the, the guy driving was Islamic. You know, I'm, I'm not some big psychic. You know, it was just, a, you know, uh, you know, yes. So I said, I, 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 swallowed, I debated whether to open it up or not. I said, oh, where are you from? Uh, and he got very, you could see, tense. And he said, after he didn't answer, you know, he got Syria. And then I just made small talk with him about it. I didn't try to give him a sermon about, we Americans, we know you're a great brother. I just established just a normal conversation with him. There are ways in which you can reassure people. Uh, can we just have a few seconds of silence? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.